Welcome to Movie Geeks United. So, Adam, what did you think of the Oscars? Well, you know, I think it. Were, I think the uh, the decision to go hostless was a good one. I think it worked in its favor. I didn't think that it really missed anything by not having a host. So, as far as that aspect of it goes, I was on board with that. Uh, obviously, the in memoriam segment left a couple of people out. There's some complaints there. They usually do, so no surprise on that. Um, you know, Carol Channing was the one most people were shouting about, I think. But uh, you know, and there were some others. Uh, as far as the awards themselves, um, well, you know, the musical performances. We can get into that. I mean, you know, of course, the the one everybody was talking about was Lady Gaga. And um, Bradley Cooper, of course, and that was well done. Although I heard some complaints about the way it was staged, and I don't know how you feel about it. I, I felt like it was okay, but a lot of people, uh, or not a lot of people, but I heard some complaints about uh, it being uh, we getting too much of the back of some people's heads and that sorts of thing. <laughs> Although I'm told that it was directed by Bradley Cooper, that he, he specified the way they shoot it. So I don't know. Uh, I thought it worked yeah. fairly well. Uh, but I thought it was beautifully the... staged. Yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't and, think it you was know, You're talking about getting the back of their heads, but man, the whole final section of it was almost uncomfortably close to their faces. <laughs> it was. I mean, it was yeah. like you. Yeah, that was the, the biggest advertisement for for uh, uh, a tan tan base makeup that I've ever seen before in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this is true. Uh, yeah, there was definitely some uh, some some chemistry, some palpable chemistry between the two of them uh, that was seeping through the airwaves. I, I felt it anyway, and uh, yeah, so that that was probably the uh, the highlight of the night. I would say uh, the the one the moment that everybody kept talking about, and uh, you know there were some complaints about some of the technical awards and people. Uh, going a little too long and getting played off and all that, but hey, you know what the hell? It's it's their night. You know when are they going to get another chance? Especially like like Ruth Carter, who's you know been yeah. away for years. And I don't have a problem you know. with the ones that went over. It was just the ones, and it was the first couple of ones really that. Uh, I mean, did were they were they did they just find out that morning that the Oscars were taking place that night? Because it seems <laughs> like they would have been a little bit more prepared, especially the category. Whatever that live action short or whatever category they were going to delete from the telecast altogether, and they go up yeah. there and all they do is stumble and look at each other. You want to talk? You want to talk? You know, like well, maybe That's you true. should have cut out that category. I mean, because you're, you knew that where you were going to be that night. I mean, you didn't even discuss who will speak if we win, and it yeah. just boggles the mind. 
Well, and and they're reading, you know, off of the phone or whatever, and fumpering. You're right. So there, there, yeah, that was an uncomfortable one there. Uh, I, if if there was one that should have been cut short, yeah, absolutely. I, I can't disagree with that. You're right. But um, uh, but I felt like it, the actual awards. I don't know how you felt about it, but I I felt like they missed the boat on a couple instances. Uh, people that we were rooting for. Um, you know, obviously there's um, Paul Schrader. Um, we and we really hated to see him not get some love for First Reformed or, or the movie either. It didn't get any love because he didn't get yeah. any love. So that was sad. There wasn't uh, even a shot of Schrader. No, uh, not at all. I I've, I've no idea where he was. Not even as somebody that was sitting behind another person. I had, I don't know where he was in the auditorium. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he might as well not not have been there, and we wouldn't have known the difference. That's true. That's 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 yeah. That's a good point. Uh, and then, of course, there were the the others who were you know long time in the running, shall we say? Uh, you know, and it, and it bothers me when you have actors that and or actresses that we've loved for for so many years, and and they're getting up in age, and and they've never won, and and then you give it to somebody who's obviously going to have most likely going to have another shot at it at some point down the line, and. I don't know. I mean, I know you you should give it based on the merit of their performance in the movie that's nominated, but still, when you got somebody like Sam Elliott, and, and I mean, not to take anything away from Mahershala Ali because he is great in Green Book. I, I I'd be the first person to say that, but they just gave it to him two years ago, or was it three years ago? Either two or three years ago, or Moonlight, whenever that was. I think two years ago. So, you know, it's like he got a prize when sam elliott is he ever going to get nominated again he's 74 years old i mean how many more opportunities is he going to have so that's the other thing that that i that bothers me and rubs me the wrong way and same thing with um you know glenn close and um and then you know and then spike lee you have that situation well karan has has already gotten his directing prize five years ago and then he gets two other ones in the evening it's like spread the love around a little bit people I mean, you know, you're right. giving him a, his third prize. The evening, you, you can't. I mean, you know, Spike's earned that. Come on, and, and Black Klansman's a good movie. So I, I don't know. I, it, that all rubbed me the wrong way. But um, you know, those were those are some grievances and and some observations. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm of course when I'm watching them announce winners that I I don't think are uh, are worthy of them the award. I'm rolling my eyes and stuff but uh but uh outside of the awards uh themselves i thought that the show was just uh ho-hum you know it was it was fun yeah Yeah. and 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 i and it had a feeling of them being really careful to tiptoe around anything controversial uh, there was a there was a sense of that for me anyway i I felt like it was kind of safe and sanitized and they they, a little, a little bit, maybe slightly neutered is a, a good way to categorize it. I don't know, but um, yeah, neutered, and yet the stage looked like a vagina. Their, <laughs> yeah, their, their stage setting, dressing. Yeah, which uh, and, I'm all right with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true, true, agreed. But yeah, those were uh, one of <laughs> Woody Allen's lines from Bullets Over Broadway. The world will open up to you like a magnificent vagina. <clears throat> That's what the stage looked like to me. Yeah, anyway, I didn't realize Paul Schrader came back on Facebook. He's been gone for a while. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he said, uh, apparently, he said in a Facebook post that he would be open to working with Kevin Spacey. And so A24, the studio that released First Reform, said, stay off of Facebook until after the Oscars. Ooh. Wow. So, so, he, so he did. And uh, somebody caught up with him uh, at the awards and asked him about Green, uh, Green Book winning um, mm-hmm. over him in his category. Isn't that what happened? Green Book won that category? I believe so, yeah. Screenplay, yeah. Yeah. And he said something to the effect of, uh, well, uh, uh, never never underestimate the, the power of mediocrity or something like that. <laughs> it must be it must be odd to be Peter Fairley and win the top award of the night. Yeah. And know, and know at the same time you're the least respected person there. <laughs> oh, yeah. What is yeah. that? <laughs> what is that dichotomy like? Yeah, especially after those revelations about him, you know, flashing his genitals on set, of, you know, one of his movies or whatever. I mean, you know, so, yeah. I can't imagine that kind of behavior on, on a set like there's something about Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, uh, it you know, and and of course, like I said, you you we don't that's out of context. You don't know what the circumstance was. I mean, you know, there's. Uh, I'm not saying that it maybe it was the right thing to do, but you know, if they were pranking each other and just, I mean, who knows? I mean, oh, I see. I was like, well, expl- yeah. explain to me what, what when when that behavior is socially accept- acceptable. No, I. I <laughs> Well, you know, but sometimes people get into a practical joking mood and they pull those sort of things. And I mean, you know, but it depends on who it was, who he was exposing himself to, and you know, if it was yeah, the what kind of company sex. he was in. Yeah, yeah what kind of yeah? yeah. No, it's a, there's a whole there's a lot that you know it's it's not it's there's a lot more to it than just saying well he exposed himself you know. But you know, I'm not def- I'm not defending it uh, by any stretch of the imagination yeah. to to clarify. I'll never forget we had uh, years ago when I was in high school. We had a Spanish teacher who was arrested for masturbating in his car in a park, uh, and and uh, he came back to teach uh, later that year, <clears throat> and he was <clears throat> at the prom, and I remember like walking into the prom, and he was standing at the door shaking hands, and I was like, I'm not shaking that hand. Because <laughs> I didn't, I, I, you know, I didn't know. See, at a park, and there are kids there. I mean, I, you know, you would mm-hmm. think if you said a lot of. I know there are different kinds of parks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't know if it was one of the kid-friendly parks, not the parks that you go to for action. You know, that kind of thing. Um. <laughs> anyway, and his name was Mister Ostoff, oh. <laughs> which was so so easy. Like the kids were like Mr. Tostoff. You know, oh yeah, so. they must have yeah. had a field day with that one. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. And his wife taught at that school too. And man, that was an awkward sem- That was an awkward mm. school year. Yeah, I, I would. <laughs> I would assume that it would be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. But, uh, yeah, you know, and there's a lot of people uh, who were really upset that Green Book won Best Picture, but I'm going to be honest, and I know I'll probably be taking the task for this, but I thought it was probably the 
second best movie of all those nominees there. Uh, you know, maybe Star is Born is the only one that, in my opinion, might be better. But, you know, I just, uh, of all those nominees, quality-wise, I I enjoyed it uh, as much or more than the majority of the nominees that, that were there. So I didn't have a problem with it personally. It's better than Black Klansman? Uh, I would say it's as good as. Um, I'm not going to say it's better than, but I enjoyed it about the same amount. It's a different movie, of course, totally different movie, but... But I enjoyed it as much, just in a different way. Um, I really did. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is interesting what what the the stark contrast that was drawn between the two of those films, and yet yeah. in, at the center of in the center of both those films is the white and the black band working together and appreciating mm-hmm. the contributions of the other. Yeah, and uh, I certainly thought it was better than Black Panther. I mean, there's no no competition there. Um, I felt like it was more emotionally um, resonant for me than Roma, which I enjoyed it from a technical perspective, but it just didn't quite connect with me emotionally, of course, as I've said. And and uh, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody. We don't even need to get into that. It's it's like night and day. And um, mm. so you know, we, we could go down it's the list. But how, I, I felt, how, Str- how Streisand chose to. Introduce Klansmen instead of A Star is Born, which was her yeah. choice. Yeah, that was interesting. And uh, I, I did like the banter between uh, she and Spike Lee, so that was good too. And yeah. there were, you know, interesting moments, like when Spike jumped into Samuel Samuel Jackson's arms. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is Blu-ray week. It is. Yeah, it's um it's been a busy month in terms of Blu-ray releases. I um it's been it's been tough for me to keep up with them. And um so it's a uh, lot, lot of catalog titles and in my opinion there's a there's a pretty fair amount of good product stuff that I uh, have appreciated for the month of February. Of, yeah, for the month of February. Yeah, it's uh it's there's been some a lot of good stuff. I mean, you know, there's there's always the ones of questionable, uh, <laughs> of dubious merit, shall we say? Say, but um, a lot lot of stuff to talk about here. So we'll just go ahead and start with February fifth, which we usually go back to the beginning of the month. And um, poetic, ju- well, it's a, it's a twofer from John Singleton. Uh, Sony has been issuing uh, some of their catalog titles. Uh, on demand, uh, you, they don't mass produce them, but if they're if somebody orders them, they'll they'll press them on demand, and uh, they've done that with two of John Singleton's films from their catalog, Poetic Justice and Higher Learning, mm. uh, his um, second and third film, and um, uh, I, I've heard that Higher Learning was the one he wanted to do first, actually, and then he. Things changed and circumstances changed, and he wound up doing Boys in the Hood first, of course. But uh, when Higher Learning came out, I, I I was well, I was a little. Poetic Justice was okay for me when I saw it originally. I might enjoy it more. I need to go and revisit it. Uh, I thought it was just okay, but I really, really liked Higher Learning when it originally came out. Although I went back to revisit it uh, a couple of years ago, and its flaws became a little more apparent. Uh, <laughs> it's a little uh, not not too much subtlety there, shall we say? Yeah. Um, yeah, I but I didn't quite care for either one of them. 
but uh, one thing that I am grateful for is uh, I had never heard uh, Stevie Wonder song "I Never Dreamed You'd Leave in Summer" until I saw Poetic Justice. Same here. And I was yeah. like, God, God, what a gorgeous song. Yep. And so sure it introduced is. me to that song. So that's that's the value of Poetic Justice for me. Yeah, but nothing it, he's done, nothing he's he's done has approached the promise of Boys in the Hood. I don't think. No. Boys in the Hood was such a such a beautiful, authentic piece of work. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And um, it's uh, I mean, you know, when you set the bar so high, it's hard to um, it's it's going to be hard to to match it, as Orson Welles could tell you if he were alive. So, um, you know. He had that um, that curse, and being so young, being nominated for best director for that as well, you know, that uh, that also uh, sets you up for for something that um, it's it's a tough act to follow. But but yeah, Higher Learning has some some really good performances in it. I think uh, I, I was more uh, uh, engaged. I guess is a good way to say to say it than I was with Poetic Justice. I was disengaged most of the time with that. But but Higher Learning has had some good moments. Uh, just, you know, not a complete... It's just a little... Uh, there's just so, so, so much of a lack of subtlety that I think hurts it overall. But uh, all the points he wants to make are just kind of bludgeoned uh, in, onto the viewer. <laughs> so... Um, anyway, uh, so the 1965 movie The Possessed, which I, is something I wasn't familiar with, uh, this is an Arrow release, and um, it's about a visitor arriving in a small Italian village looking for a woman, and they, uh, the residents tell him she committed suicide, but there's more. it's a mystery. Uh, he finds out there's more than, than he's aware of, and it stars Peter Baldwin, directed by um, Luigi Bazzoni and Franco Rossellini, two Filmmakers, I'm not really all that familiar with, but anyway, we got uh, so the 1968 Oscar winner Charlie with Cliff Robertson and Claire Bloom. This is the uh, the one where Cliff Robertson took home the Oscar, and it's the uh, you know the story about the mentally challenged man who has an operation that allows him to become super intelligent, but then it doesn't take, and he eventually reverts tell to me, his old tell self. Tell me your thoughts on this. Tell me your thoughts on this because I feel like that is a movie. Um, that suffers from uh, all of its dated kind of psycho, psychological uh, uh, psychedelic touches. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it is it is so stuck in the time it's made, and it should have been approached as something timeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel the same way about lots of Midnight Cowboy as well. But uh, but that that's more of a movie of its time, so I can accept it more. Yeah, well, it came out the same year as Thomas Crown Affair, and I think they both have some some of the same thing from a technical uh-huh. perspective. Some of the same thing going on, so it was it was a big deal around that time. I, I don't know. I, I like some of those psychedelic touches. Uh, it is a bit much at times, but there's um, there's a really interesting thing going on towards the end of the movie that I, I really it's uh, where he's imagining that he's in a uh, uh, a maze. And he's being uh, he's running from his former self when he had low IQ or whatever. So his former self is chasing him through this maze, and he's trying to get away from him because he he realizes what's getting ready to happen. And it's a uh, you know it's a 
a figurative thing, of course, but it's uh, it's very well done. Uh, that's the imagery that sticks with me, the way that's that's staged and and done, and I like that. And uh, I don't yeah. think it. Yeah, you're right. It does hurt the movie overall, and it does take it down a notch or two from probably what it would have been had I seen it when it was originally released in 1968. But but uh, there 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 are good things to embrace about it. I I love Claire Bloom. She's just always great and um she's never better than she is here and and he's good too i i think and so yeah it's uh i'd give it a b plus but there's um there's some some good things going on there just but like you said that's a good uh, assessment i would say uh for for donnie brasco fans i would say oh um, charlie is a keynote release by the way uh donnie brasco fans uh, mill creek has issued finally the original theatrical cut of donnie brasco because previously on blu-ray you couldn't get anything but the uh the director's cut so the extended version or whatever it is so um there was um that has that has been issued by mill creek to rectify that situation um, yeah, I think the, I've seen. I think I've seen. I think I've seen that movie enough, because yeah. <laughs> I've, I've noticed on, on on my last couple of uh, viewings of it, I'm aware of how slow it is. Yeah. Um, it's it's and it's slow, not in the, not like, in the good way, like a patient kind of deliberate pace, slow yeah. in slow is in terms of being sluggish. Yeah. As many char- as many character moments as I love in that movie. It feels very sluggishly paced uh to me in later viewings. I can agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I I still find it enjoyable overall, but uh and again, um you know, some some good performance stuff going on there. But yeah, there is a, a Pacino is masterful in it. Oh and yeah, I, and I, I do, I do really love how it's a, it, it's a gangster movie uh, in a mournful tone, uh, and I, I like how they make him the. I mean, it's the for everyone that complained about the romanticism of The Godfather, it's an answer to that because it's, it's really Pacino's really the Willie Loman of gangsters in that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, totally agree. So, uh, well, but any, if anybody wants to um, go back and see the actual theatrical cut, well, now you can get it, and I think you can get it for less than ten, less than ten bucks. So it's not like you gotta spend a lot to get it. But um, so the 1968 Ingmar Bergman film Shame, and uh, of course, a couple of months ago they put out the massive box set that has uh, basically all but one of Ingmar Bergman's films, and uh, this was in that box. But now they've issued it separately. Criterion has with the you know, a nice batch of extras, and uh, that's considered to be one of his uh, his better films, Shame, from 68. So, um, and we have uh, Shadowlands has been reissued from 1993 by Universal. That's Anthony Hopkins and Deborah Winger. I think it was previously available, but it went out of print, and now they've, they've put it, uh, brought it back out. I quite enjoyed this when I saw it uh, in a theater in back in 93 but I haven't seen it since and I I'd like to revisit it. I've been meaning to do that for for a while and I just haven't gotten around to it. I wonder how I would feel about it now. Uh, <coughs> yeah, it's a lot more overtly uh, emotional than uh, 
Remains of the Day. I think Remains of the Day is a very emotional movie, but it's 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 emotionality is based on repression, and Shadowlands yes. is pretty much the pretty pretty much the opposite. Uh, so they do feel like flip sides of the coin mm-hmm. in terms of that. And uh, Anthony Hopkins in both is just beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I just remember the scene uh, after she's after uh, Deborah Winger's character. Yeah. What's her name? Joy Gresham, I think. After she has died, and he's there's that spoiler. That he, yeah, yeah. Well, any most people going into it know it's you know that, that that's what it's about. It's I would I would six assume. years. It's 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 fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In the uh, sitting in the attic with the with her son and sobbing. Yeah. Yeah, and he says something about I can't remember what she looks like or something like that. I can't remember her face or something to that effect. Yeah. I just remember just being overcome. I was just I was like, wow, I can't, I can't handle this. It's great, and and to contrast that with his work in Remains of the Day, where all, all of that is kept inside, but it, it's there on the surface. Uh, yeah, you know, it's amazing versatility, and both of them are equally impactful. I think. Mhm. Yeah, I uh yeah, I, I have a feeling I would appreciate it now. Maybe even more so because 26 years have elapsed since and I've lived a lot since then. So <laughs> I think I think life experience would make me appreciate it more. Let's put it that way. Um so Jack Lemmon directed only one film in his uh, entire career <laughs> and that would yeah. uh, uh that would be Koch from 1971. Uh Crotch, stars, yes. Crotch, <laughs> crotchety. <tea. laughs> uh, now, Walter Matthau, uh, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, I should say, has the lead here, and uh, he's got old age makeup on in this one, which is interesting. But he's uh, he's this older gentleman who decides he can't settle in a nursing home, which his family wants him to do. So he's he's a retired salesman. He he he's told he has to leave his son's family, so he embarks on a road trip since he can't see himself in a nursing home at this point. And he strikes up a friendship with a pregnant teenager played by uh, Deborah Winters, who was in a lot of movies in the early 70s. I kind of had a crush on her back in the day. She's also in the sequel to Summer of 42, Class of 44. But um, anyway, uh, it's it's a it's a nice breezy little movie. Uh, you know, again, uh, around the B plus is if, is what I would give it if I were giving it a, a grade. Um, it's enjoyable. He's good in it. I think he did get a, an Academy Award nomination actually for Best Actor. But um, if you're interested in seeing what Jack Lemmon could do behind the camera, well, Koch is um, is, is out now from Kino mm. Warber. Uh, yeah. And, um, Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau is one of those guys that always looked old. Yeah, I uh, yeah, did. So, so when when he's wearing old makeup and Koch, <clears throat> yeah, does he look like does he look like he did when he wore the old age makeup at the opening of Charlie Varick? Didn't he have to wear uh, old age makeup in one of those heists that he pulled? Yeah, I think he did. I can't remember exactly what he looked like in that, but his hair is, is grayed out in this movie. He's got he's got the full gray. Of course, you know we never saw him with gray hair in any of his <laughs> movies. Not even when he was approaching yeah. eighty. <laughs> so uh, yeah, he looked a little when in that old age makeup in Charlie Varick. He looked a little bit like um, the uh, "It's Time to Make the Donuts" guy. <laughs> yeah, it's true. What was that guy's but, name? Uh, God, Charlie Varick is a great movie. 
isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the bright spots yeah. of Don Siegel's career. Yeah, yeah I think so. A, yeah, I think that's been that was issued on Blu-ray over in the UK. Unfortunately, it hasn't been issued here yet. I think Kino's got it on the way. I think it's coming. It's forthcoming, but it hasn't been released yet. So, but uh, so there's a for anybody who's a fan of the Benji films, Mill Creek has issued a three for uh, Benji for the love of Benji and Benji off the leash. These are supposedly new transfers, and uh, so anyway, uh, if you're a fan, so just of Benji to release films, Benji, could 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 the company change their name to Puppy Mill Creek? <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Uh. Well, uh, Diamonds for Breakfast is another key, you know, release. This one has Marcello Mastrioni and Rita Tushingham from 1968, and it's uh, Diamonds. It's Diamonds what? Diamonds, Diamonds for, breakfast? for Breakfast. Yeah, it's uh, four thieves trying to steal the imperial jewels of Russia, and um. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, like one of those late '60s heist films, but uh, yeah, that's a that's a Kino release. And we were talking about Universal earlier with their Shadowlands uh, being issued. Well, they've also issued and uh, the final film written and directed by Charlie Chaplin, and uh, mm. it wasn't really a bright spot. A Countess from Hong Kong, starring Hong Marlon Kong, Brando. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Marlon Brando and Sophia Loren. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's interesting. Brando Brando wanted to work with Chaplin. Mm-hmm. That, yes, he did. That, I mean, that's just that's a curio enough to check out, though. Yeah, I've always wanted to see it. I never have. Um, I think Chaplin was seventy-seven years old when he directed it. I believe he was in his mid-seventies, at least I know. And so he, because he yeah. died ten years later, and he was almost ninety then. So he was he, he was really getting up there was, when he made this one. Was he was he still in exile when he directed it? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a slapstick romantic comedy about a Russian countess who hides in the room of a wealthy American businessman traveling back to the states. That's the plot. But it uh, huh. also has Tippi Hedren in it. Um, but it, it is so, notable. So it it it, pre- it predated his Oscar when he came back to the states. Yes. Except yeah. Five years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he came back in '72, wow. and, and you got to remember too that Limelight was the was never issued in America. It was made in '52, but never because of all the flack with him being in exile. Never issued in America until 1971, I believe, and it started playing uh-huh. in theaters in the Los Angeles area, I believe. So that was that was kind of the renaissance that led to that moment at the Oscars was when they reissued uh, Limelight. Uh, also starring Claire Bloom, whom was in Char- who El- who was in Charlie that we mentioned earlier, and uh, just to get in another plug for a Claire Bloom movie, but uh, yeah, but a Countess from Hong Kong is interesting because you know Char- Charlie Chaplin always composed his own scores, as we know, and Smile, of course, from City Lights is I mean not City Lights, uh, Modern Times is one of uh, the iconic pieces of film music, but uh, there's a a great song from this movie as well. I, I'm, I'm sure you probably remembered it was actually a hit for Petula Clark. Um, this is my song. Huh. Which, uh, yeah, uh, I've, got, which, I've uh, got it on vinyl. I've got the soundtrack yeah. on vinyl. Yeah. And like I said, Petula Clark had a top 40 hit with it. So at least it had, uh, he was able to get uh, a little chart action with the music from the film. So <laughs> if nothing else, he Petula, got that. Petula, that, that's, that's a name you don't hear anymore. Petula. 
Petulia. That's true. Nobody names her kid that anymore. No, no, you you do not. Yeah, <laughs> I would. Thank I would. You. I love these. I love these beautiful observations. Uh, uh, completely nonsensical observations I make. <laughs> the only thing really to respond to them is, yeah, you're right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Well, hey, you, when when they come into your head, you gotta let them out. <laughs> Why not? Oh yeah. So yeah, so we're moving on to I guess uh, February the. Petula Clark. What was her big hit? Was it Downtown? Or was that somebody? Uh else? yeah, yeah, that was the big one, and uh, she had okay. Don't Sleep in the Subway, which was another big one, and then she had My Love. Was another huge hit. So she had a she had a couple there. Don't sleep in the subway. I've never heard. Don't yeah. Sleep in the subway. Yeah, that's, that's good a, advice. That's a, <laughs> yeah, that was a big big hit. Yeah, and then. Uh, like and then she followed that up with uh, "Don't shit where you eat." And it was a, <laughs> it's a good series of songs. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, I think. Um, uh, the, mm, there, there is another one. She had the grass is greener or something like that. So that's that's what oh, yeah. we followed it up with, I believe. Well, um, so anyway, moving on to February twelfth, we have the horror film audition from nineteen ninety nine. That's one that's uh, pretty well mm. renowned. I never did get around to seeing that one, and that's an Arrow release. But they've put it out with a brand new transfer and lots of lots of extras. Uh, so I just rather, of, I, I, you know. I'm not opposed to those movies. I'm just opposed to watching them for the most part. Uh, I, I don't want to get sick from watching a movie. And, and there yeah. there are some images that from certain uh, gross films that I can't get out of my head. And yeah, you know, I, I just I'd rather not have those images in there when I'm trying to eat or something. Yeah, you know? <laughs> agreed. I mean, agreed. I, there's nothing productive. Of, there's nothing productive about having them in my head. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I did watch a movie similar to that. It's it's kind of like an audition light. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a brand new movie called Piercing. Um, okay. Where this family man uh, fantasizes about murdering someone, and so he he concocts this uh, lie to his wife that he's going out on a business trip. <clears throat> For the weekend, and it's really all an elaborate ruse to hire a prostitute and kill her in in his room. And uh, the tables turn, and she ends up kind of torturing him. It, it it's not quite as shocking or gross as audition because I, I I know about the shock scenes in audition, uh, but it's also not very good. But uh, it's a brand new movie. I don't even think it's been. Oh, it's on demand. That's where I watched it. So it just came available on demand. Piercing. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Piercing. Right. For any horror fans who don't know about that one, <laughs> there's your warning. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, speaking of horror films, the uh, the 2001 horror film, Valentine, which, uh, you know, it's another one of these that is a requested title that Scream Factory has issued it. Uh, it's been licensed from Warner Brothers, but this one stars... Oh, you have Katherine Heigl and Denise Richards and David Boreanaz. And hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's one of those uh, masked, Cupid masked killer going around slashing up people and, you know, in the, in the early 2000s when they were doing a lot of those type of things, which, uh, well, I guess they're still doing them, but 
you know, I guess this one was, uh, you know, my bloody Valentine wasn't enough, so they had to to, yeah. to do another one. So, but yeah, this one has a lot of uh, a lot of extras, new audio commentary, new interviews with Denise Richards and uh, the co-writers. And yeah, they the did YouTube. an audio commentary from Denise. You mean she talks all the way through it? Uh, no, they do on camera interviews with her. Oh, okay. uh, and they do new audio commentary with the director, and uh, this is interesting. Don Coscarelli, the director of Phantasm, who had nothing to do with this film, but for some reason is on the audio commentary. I don't quite understand <laughs> it, but I guess he's I guess he's a fan of the movies. So. Well, they couldn't get someone. They could get someone from the actual movie that's owed up to it. So they're like, oh, all right. Yep. Uh, that's interesting, huh? Yeah, and he didn't, and he didn't produce a, it or anything. Uh, no, no, his name is not on the credits anywhere that I can see, and so um, I don't know. I don't. Those I don't movies quite really understand. were like a dime a, do- dime a dozen back then, and they all kind of bleed into one another because they were they were yeah. remaking uh, a few of those old seventies uh, horror movies uh, during that period of time because they remade Prom Night. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, they remade something else. I can't think of it, but that Prom Night was. Had Shia LaBeouf and Idris Elba in it. I think that's the one. It did, about. didn't it? I forgot all about that. Yeah, they were in that, weren't they? You got to start somewhere. <laughs> that's proof of it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I uh, I didn't get around to seeing Valentine yet, so I can't really uh, comment on the actual quality of the film. Although it's uh, it's on the top of the list here, I'm going to get around to it soon. But um, I know there there were a lot of requests for this movie, and since uh, Screen Factory huh. has recently inked a deal with Warner Brothers, they're they're trickling out some of these Warner titles that Warner Brothers doesn't want to really issue. But uh, they've been they've been doing a good job on that stuff. So uh, anyway, Valentine is is available. Um, as is another Arrow release, Horror Express from 1972, which stars Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. It's uh, not this um, old, this missing link type creature who gets thawed out on this train and starts uh, 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 killing off the passengers. Telly Savalas also is in this. Oh, good! You sold me now. What year? What year is that? 1972. Huh. Yeah, it's a nice restoration that Arrow Films has done. Uh, they actually took the original 35 millimeter camera negative and scanned it in 2K resolution. Uh, this is a movie that used to turn up in the bargain bins when I first got my VCR 30 years ago. You know, there were titles that were in the public domain, and somehow this one was in the public domain. And it used to, I used to see it all the time, real, real cheap. And so I, I was able to get it on the cheap, and it's, it's enjoyable. It's, it's a fun little movie. Um, you know, if you like those early 70s horror films. And, of course, they would take that premise of a bunch of people stuck on a train and, and kind of redo it with uh, Terror Train, you know, with Jamie Lee Curtis, except it's a killer on the train, not, an, not a missing link killing people. But um, Right. Anyway. Do you ever see, the, uh, you ever see the, the, the Midnight Meat Train? No, I didn't. Mm-mm. The Bradley Cooper's in that? No, I did not. I'm aware of it, but... Uh, is it uh, recommended or? I was watching some Q and A. I think it was the Director's Guild Q and A with Bradley Cooper, and mm-hmm. they brought up Midnight Meat Train, and both the moderator and Bradley Cooper were talking about how much they loved that movie. Oh, like, really? Interesting. Uh, maybe, maybe I should check it out. <laughs> <clears throat> well, uh, another time. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a horror movie. 
it's literally about a train that delivers meat. Oh, <laughs> wow, wow! I thought no, maybe it I'm was kidding. a horror film. I wasn't sure. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. Well, that would be uh, that, that. That would be interesting if it was, uh, for sure. Yes, yeah, so sell, uh, sell it as a horror movie, so you get that crowd out there that's expecting a scare movie, and have it literally yeah. be about a train that travels all hours of the night to deliver meat to various locations. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be great. But you could have it, uh, you know, have a, have a, a family like the uh, the clan from Texas Chainsaw Massacre on board the train, and you know that's where the meat's coming from, or something like that. They're carving up the passengers and right know, sells itself. Would you be Would you be interested, like in uh, you know, this isn't an invitation. I'm just wondering if you'd be interested in it. Like if you were traveling to various movie locations across the country, would would Texas be a stop for you in that gas station they used in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I would like to see that. I really would. Because you know, you know they they've re, they've reopened it to the public to the kind of kind of tourism industry yeah. around this movie, and they even built cabins that you can rent and and stay in overnight on, on the property. Oh wow! That would be fun. <laughs> that would be fun. Uh, maybe maybe yeah yeah. I mean, I love that movie so much. I would just, uh, I'd be curious to see where it was, you know, where that really took place. Yeah, sure. Well, um, so we mentioned earlier, Sony has been doing these direct to video, uh, direct, you know, on demand discs uh, pressings, and they've. Uh, this is a movie with an interesting release history. Fright Night from 1985, of course, written and directed by Tom Holland, and uh, you know, a major cult favorite. Uh, of course, it was released by uh, Twilight Time, you know, twice, sold out both times. Uh, a lot of the fans of the movie were very angry because they it sold out so quick they couldn't get their hands on it. And, uh, and then it was issued a couple of years ago by Eureka Entertainment in the uh, UK, and that's the one I bought. That's that's the one to have if you have a, uh, a region-free player because it has a two-and-a-half hour documentary on the making of the movie which is really uh, yes it does yes it, it's it's huge the uh the documentary it covers i mean it's very encompassing i guess is the word uh if you want to know about the all the the history lots of interesting interviews and you know archive footage and stuff it's uh it's it's the one to have so uh, that reminds me of the the social network documentary, like the, yeah, that's longer than the actual movie, and it's yeah, exactly. It's so it's, it's so exhaustive, which great, which you know I have no problem with that. It's a great resource. Uh, of course, yeah. You don't you don't have to sit through it like a film. I mean, you could stop it and restart yeah. it, <laughs> you know, wherever you want. But Fright Night is a movie I rewatched maybe six months ago, and uh, I really enjoyed. It's uh, old old fashionedness, and it yeah, was it was even old fashioned back in 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it felt like a throwback to Hammer kind of stuff. It did, know? yeah, yeah. I remember uh, I remember I saw it opening weekend. I saw it that Sunday. It opened on a Friday. I saw it that Sunday, and I liked it so much. I went back the next Sunday and saw it again. <laughs> I just remember that. Yeah, it's one of those affectionate throwback movies. I, I, I like yeah, 
It was. It was. But I wanted to mention the Eureka Entertainment edition that I was just mentioning with the two and a half hour documentary. And that's not the only extra, by the way. There are many others on it. But the new one from Sony has nothing on it. It's just bare bones. And huh. the, uh, the the Twilight Time that sold out, even it had some extras on it. But the new the new one from Sony, uh, as far as I'm aware, has nothing on it. It's bare bones. But and it's almost thirty dollars, I think. So if you got That's a bare have, bones title, yeah, see, they're, because, they're capital they're capitalizing on the on the demand for it, um, obviously, by pricing it like that. Well, all of their on demand titles are are priced. At that price range, even like Multiplicity is, believe it or not, they've got that at the same price range. Uh, that have a two and, and a half hour documentary on it. Uh, oh uh, yeah, we don't have that. But uh, and, and the other ones, well, there were a couple other titles we mentioned earlier that were, uh, the, oh, the Higher Learning and Poetic Justice. Those are also twenty seven ninety five. So all of their on demand titles are, are okay. kind of exorbitantly priced. I guess because they have to press them right there, you know, but. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so Criterion has issued a, a massive box set with the um, you know Rainer Werner Fassbinder, of course, the German director who was we know him as being that super prolific guy who had directed um, oh I don't know what what was it about but he died at age thirty seven I think but he made forty some movies or something I believe some God. ridiculous yeah he, he was, I didn't he was realize like most he died pro- that young. Oh yeah, he he didn't even make it to forty, and he was so prolific. You know, he, he is the amount of titles that he cranked out was just I don't know. He probably was completely burned out. I would assume by the time he got uh, working all the time, but he actually made a fifteen-hour. Uh, it was a German television making of, project. Uh, making of Fright Night. <laughs> no, he didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit before he didn't quite live long enough to see Fright Night. Um, but uh, this is a 15-hour adaptation of the Alfred Doblin modernist novel, Berlin Alexanderplatz. Yes, yes. And, uh, yeah, he was 34 when he made this, and he had already made over 30 films at that point. So this it's a television is, uh, miniseries, isn't it? It was is, it yeah. Made as a, is it, was it made as a miniseries, or was it made it as was. a film? Yeah, it was made uh, okay. for German television as a miniseries, and it's never been issued, I don't think, in America, but Criterion has issued it here in this massive box set with um, brand-new transfer, uh, digital restoration by the Rainer Werner Fastbinder Foundation. Uh, there are documentaries on Rainer Werner Fastbinder about his life. There's actually interviews with him here, uh, interviews with people who oh. knew him and all kinds of stuff. So, I remember seeing it. If I'm not mistaken, I remember seeing it uh, from Criterion in DVD form. Many. It years may ago. have been. It may have yeah. been. Yeah, that's true. And I may have. D- didn't they also release Ali, uh, the Fear Eats the Soul? Uh, they did. Isn't even that a Criterion that, yeah. title? Yes, yeah. I know that for a fact. Yeah, that is out. I wasn't a hundred percent sure about Berlin Alexander Potts if it had been previously issued on DVD, but I know this was the first Blu-ray issue for sure. Um, so, but anyway, anyone who is a fan of uh, or Fastbinder, and I generally am, I do respond to his stuff. I mean, like any director, he, you know, there are a couple of weak spots here and there, but by and large, I, uh, I really liked him uh, as a general rule. Huh. He died. He died of a cocaine overdose. Yeah, I knew it was drug related. I couldn't remember what uh, what exactly. 
Yeah, he had to be on the coke to get all these uh, movies made. <laughs> all the movies <laughs> done, yeah. <laughs> he didn't have time to sleep for crying out loud. Yeah, but, uh, he was the he was the Don Simpson of four foreign auteur directors. Yes, exactly. I look at that guy. I remember reading his, uh, you know, picking up a, this before the internet. There was a book on movie directors, and I was looking at all the movies that he had directed, and I was just, I remember. You know, being in my early twenties and just be, being just gobsmacked by the incredible output that he and I was like, "Wow, yeah. my God, look what this guy did!" <laughs> I I wanted to be yeah. that guy. I wanted to be that prolific. I really did. I, that was, uh, of course, life took over and it didn't happen. But I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a, a body of work like that? <laughs> so. Yeah, it's interesting. Just as a complete non sequitur, because we're talking about cocaine overdose. Wouldn't it be ironic <laughs> if if Oliver Stone dies of a heart attack on the toilet while reading a biography on Don Simpson, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> that would be something. <laughs> that indeed would be something. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right, well, long live Oliver Stone. We And we'll get to him in a little bit because one of his titles uh, came out this month, and it's worth discussing a little bit. Uh so the Poison Ivy Collection is another one from Scream Factory. This is, uh, of course, the um, you know the original Poison Ivy star Drew Barrymore. It's you know when she was uh, coming out of rehab, trying to get her career reestablished, and um, mm. you know in the early nineties, has Tom Skerritt in it, and it's, it's um, Cheryl Ladd and Sarah Gilbert, and it's you know it's basically about the the young girl who insinuates herself into this family and. Yeah. Seduces her way into their lives, all that stuff, and it's really. And then, uh, then Jamie Presley took over the role, and uh, yeah, yeah, there's four, there's four of them actually, believe it or not. Oh god. um, Yeah, Poison Ivy two, Lily has Alyssa Milano. That's the second one, and then Jamie Presley's in the third one, which is Poison Ivy: The New Seduction. And then there's the fourth one, Poison Ivy, The Secret Society, which has Miriam McDonald. I don't know who much about Miriam wow. McDonald, but anyway, uh, these movies are kind of tepid affairs, really. Um, but, you know, there are fans. There are legions of fans of these things who remember them fondly from the, the, uh, the yeah, their, their heyday. Yeah, they are. They really are. And uh, I know Poison Ivy was released in art house theaters uh, around here, and there was an unrated version running around, you know, that had a little more flesh, shall we say. But it's still a pretty tepid affair. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, I wanted to make sure people knew that uh, the Poison Ivy collection is, is available. Um, and then we get into some of the uh, Warner Archive titles. And uh, there's a trio of them this month, and they're interesting. One of them is, uh, you wouldn't think of this as being a Warner Archive title because it's a fairly recent movie, or it is in my eyes anyway, or in my mind, but um, it's uh, Starsky and Hutch with Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson. Mm. Uh, It was never released on Blu-ray, and so the archive has, it's considered an archive title now that it's 15 years old. Uh, and that is kind of shocking for me. But I thought this was a fun movie. It, it was kind of in the same wheelhouse as the Brady Bunch movie and the uh, and the Brady Barry Brady sequel. It's you know it's they're kind of jokingly doing this this with a nod to the original. And you know it's, you got uh, Snoop Dogg as Huggy Bear. And, and you got a cameo from the original stars, right? You do, yeah. And there's a there's a funny uh, inside joke. 
he serenades his, his girlfriend with "Don't Don't Give Up on Us, Baby," which was a number one record for David Soul, the star of the show, when the show was on. So uh, <laughs> I always think that's funny when he breaks out the acoustic guitar and sings "Don't Give Up on Us, Baby." <laughs> they, uh, you know, it's nice those little nods like that. I don't know. I enjoyed it. What can I tell you? So uh, it's 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 a fun movie. Um, Have you seen another? Them, uh... Glazier and David Soul have they were photographed a couple of years ago together, uh-huh. and uh, it's terrible getting old. I mean, David oh, Soul yeah. looks uh, really uh, in bad shape, but um, as we Glazer's all be if we lived lived to a certain age, but yeah, what's that? I said I think Glazer's holding up fairly well. Last time I saw him, anyway, but yeah, uh, yeah, David Soul was showing his age a little, yeah, but it happens, you know. And natural yeah. part of the if you live long enough it happens but yeah so one of uh you don't when you think about Blake Edwards one thing you don't think about is westerns and uh you know and but he he was he could do a little bit of everything as evidenced by you know his the days of wine and roses and breakfast at tiffany's and experiment in terror so he was more than just those slapstick movies but anyway the wild rovers is a movie that has a uh a really nice reputation. A lot of a lot of people love this movie, and we're clamoring for it to get released. And it's um, William Holden, Ryan O'Neill, and Carl Malden. Um, and mm. William Holden and Ryan O'Neill are actually uh, two two cowboys who um, connect and decide to rob a bank just for the hell of it. And uh, that's essentially what it is. And it was originally it was issued by MGM originally, and they trimmed it down. It was originally supposed to be a two hour and seventeen minute movie, and they they sliced an hour out of it and dumped it in theaters unceremoniously in 1971. And uh, the Z Channel in Los Angeles that was uh, you know would rescue a lot of these mm-hmm. movies. They were the, responsible, of course, for rescuing uh, Heaven's Gate because they were the uh, you know once it was chopped all the pieces they actually broadcast the complete version well they did the same thing with this film the wild rovers they found the actual missing half hour and put it and had blake edwards come in and put it back in there and they uh they put it on they aired it uh complete uh, with its overture and everything and it has a it's rare because blake edwards normally always worked with henry mancini as his composer but in this one he's uh it's a jerry goldsmith score which makes it even more interesting wow one of the few times he broke with uh, Henry Mancini, but it's a it's a nice movie. It's a it's very well shot uh, by uh, I believe Lucian Ballard shot it as well. No, no, it's Philip Lathrop. I'm sorry, uh, who shot a lot of things in the 70s and well before that as well. But anyway, uh, the Wild Rovers is uh, there are no extras on this. Uh, well, there is a featurette. I'm sorry, uh, uh, behind the scenes featurette that was made at the time, vintage featurette. But uh, yeah. you know. It's it's fun. It's a fun movie, and uh, I'm so glad they put it out. It looks great, and um, I'm just I'm so glad. And who they put this out? This is Warner Archive. So okay. Yeah, and the, and that the third would be an Warner interesting Archive. documentary. That'd be an oh, interesting documentary to watch again. The one on the Z Channel. I haven't seen oh, that. Oh yeah, in it's terrific. Yeah, I nope. saw that last time I was in L.A. They ran it on a, at uh, at the Saturday Night Midnight Movie. And huh. uh, I was so I was actually it's the only 35 millimeter print of it in existence was the one they uh, ran wow. that night and uh, it was it was very nice to see because I had not seen it since it came out and it was nice to see it in a the theater it was a lot of fun I enjoyed that so 
Yeah, it uh, it's funny because I was kind of at that time I'd seen a bunch of duds in a row, uh, new movies that is, uh, things that just really I th- I thought well maybe I'm falling out of love with movies and so I walked into that theater that night and saw the uh, the screening of Z Channel and they have all these vintage clips of you know movies from our that were you know uh, that are from our piv- the pivotal years of our youth, I guess you would say, and movies that we've discovered over the years. And I, and I could just feel my blood, my, my heart beating fast, and the blood was pumping, and I thought, yeah, I've still got it. <laughs> Seeing those clips yeah. on the big screen, I thought, yeah, it didn't go away. I just had seen a bunch of bad movies that uh, had soured me on the experience. But once I saw that, I thought, yeah, it's still there. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, I need to watch it again. Yeah, it's very, very good. Very well done. And here's one you uh, that we know pretty well, um, and this is another Warner Archive release, is Year of the Dragon. Speaking of Chimino, we mm. just referenced him. Uh, this features a commentary by Chimino uh, as a bonus in the theatrical trailer. And uh, this has been circulating around as a European Blu-ray for years, but what makes this one special is if you're a true fan of the movie, uh, you got to have this one because it's a fresh transfer from the original 35mm uh, interpositive, I, I think, uh, 2K scan. So uh, Warner Archive, they usually do really, really good work with uh, their transfers. They have their in-house transfer, transfer um, unit where they do these things. So uh, yeah, Year of the Dragon. I've had several several of our listeners have already asked me about it. Uh, what did I know? And yes, it, just want to clarify, it is a new transfer, and you know, not perfect, but but it has some really good stuff in there. And of course, Oliver Stone. We were just mentioning him. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll reference him again because <laughs> he did the screenplay honors here. And um, and the stuff with the wife, Carolyn. I forget her last name. Uh. But the woman that plays his wife is that magnificent in the movie. She's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you looked her up because we were going to we we're do a Year of the Dragon a few years ago, an anniversary show. And she's uh, she's an acting teacher now. Mm. Yeah, she has her own studio. I th- or maybe she teaches at a u- acting at a university. I'm not sure. Interesting. Where, but, uh, man, she's she's great in that movie. Yeah, she really is. Yeah. It's uh I I was I'm really I was really super happy they uh they decided to put that one out. So that that's And here's something interesting. Here's something interesting. There's only been two interview requests I've sent in the past 12 years where yeah. people have requested to be requested to be paid. One was the first interview request I sent to uh Gunnar Hansen. Mm-hmm. Uh and then I I was eventually able to get him cuz he was promoting a book. Mm-hmm. And the second is uh, was Mickey Rourke for the Year of the Dragon show that I was. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, oh jeez. Well, what are you gonna say? <laughs> no, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so one of Sidney Lumet's lesser-known films from 1966, The Group, which follows. Uh, mm a group of graduates of Vassar College through the years, their trials and tribulations. That's uh, Candace Bergen and Joan Hackett, Elizabeth Hartman, Shirley Knight, Joanna Pettit, Jessica Walter, uh, Kathleen Woods, James Broderick, Larry Hagman, Hal Holbrook, and Richard Mulligan, and Carrie Nye. So how about that cast? 
But uh, it's a sprawling two-hour two and 30-minute look at these the lives of these college grads and takes place mostly in the 30s and 40s. But um, anyway, it's, it's an interesting um, entry in his resume. And since I'm a Sidney Lumet fan, I was eager to see it, have been yeah. for years. And, yeah, so it's um, – There's – is it any good? Did you see it? Yeah, it's it's good. It, uh, it it's I wouldn't say it's one of his best films, but it's it's interesting. Let's put it that way. Uh, and there's enough of a plot yeah. that keeps chugging along that uh, you're not really bored. I mean, you know, there's something going on. It's kind of has a lot of soap opera type trimmings, I guess you'd say. So um, there's a couple of a couple of Lupin films that I haven't seen. Yeah. Uh, like Child's Play. That's a Lumet movie that I haven't seen. I haven't either. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, not the Chucky movie. No, <laughs> no relation, folks. Play. No relation, folks. But yeah, the it's group called Child's is, Play, uh, right? I, yeah. I can see the poster. I, yeah. Okay. I think it has James Roderick in it again. I believe he's in it. Yeah. Mm. But um, the group uh, is a Kino release. Kino Lorber. Uh, as is Bur- the Burt Lancaster film. This one's uh, directed by Burt Lancaster, co-directed by Burt Lancaster. Uh, Roland Keeby and Burt Lancaster directed uh, The Midnight Man. And uh, Burt Lancaster, this is a 1974 film where um, Daisy, uh, Catherine Bach, Daisy Duke of the Dukes of Hazard, of course, she turns up dead, and uh, Burt Lancaster is the night watchman at this uh, college, and so he takes it upon himself to investigate her murder and find out why she was killed and uh, what the reasons are. And so it's it's a murder mystery with a lot of great actors from that period. Um, Susan Clark is in it, Cameron Mitchell, uh, Charles Tyner, Ed Lauder. You know, there's uh, Morgan Woodward. There's um, whom I think I think we, he may have just passed. He's the, uh, the the guy with the the sunglasses in Cool Hand Luke. I believe we just lost him a couple of days ago, yes. actually. But um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so yeah, The Midnight Man is, is an interesting mid '70s movie that has never been issued on video at all. Never, I don't think uh, VHS or or DVD or anything until now. It's a Kino release. But yeah, it's 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 um it's pretty good actually. Um, I would recommend it, especially if you're a Burt Lancaster fan, and I am. And uh, one more Kino release is uh, The Rover, starring Anthony Quinn and Rita Hayworth and Richard Johnson. And um, this is uh, a period piece that takes place during the French Revolution. And um, it's uh, the Anthony Quinn character. He barely escapes arrest and flees to an isolated spot near the coast, and um, he rescues a deranged girl who makes his life hell, basically. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, the rover is directed by Terrence Young, and this is um, he's the Terrence Young who directed the first couple of Bond pictures and also Wait Until Dark, made the same year as Wait Until Dark, as a matter of fact, but another Kino release. And uh, one more uh, Arrow film is My Name is Julia Ross from 1943. Three, and uh, that's a film noir from from uh, from that period. That's it's pretty interesting, I would say. And, um, and then we'll move along here to the Twilight Time titles. And this is where we wanted to get into a little uh, discussion of uh, Oliver Stone. How about Talk Radio? Because that has been issued on Blu-ray, and I rewatched that. And uh, wow, what a prescient movie that has turned out to be with everything that's going on in the in the news and our 
current climate. There's so much of that that rings so true. And I and watching it, you you have to remember that this was before even Rush Limbaugh was on the air. Nobody knew who he was. Yeah. And uh, you know, of course, partially based on the true story of Alan Berg, who was a talk show host in Colorado who was gunned down in the parking lot after inciting his listeners on a nightly basis. And um, you know, it's it also it's Eric Bogosian, of course, based on his one act play and co-written the uh, co co the screenplay is co-written by Oliver Stone. And uh, it features wonderful supporting work by Alec Baldwin, looking incredibly young there, and Ellen Green and John McGinley and John Pankow. And just, uh, I think this was the movie where Oliver Stone's style, the Oliver Stone style, became apparent. Because uh, the movies he had made up until this point were, you know, they were were well made, but he didn't really have a stylistic touch to them that you could... That really jumped out at you, but talk radio has all kinds of tricks, courtesy of Robert Richardson. Of course, uh, he contributed a lot. What, uh, what, year, what year was talk radio? radio 88, 88, yeah. Eight? Yeah, and the thing that jumps out to me is, you know, he's using the split diopters, and he's using the uh, the rotating sets yeah. with the camera going around. You know, there's all kinds of tricks here, visually. This movie's just never stops. The camera never stops moving. It, well, it, 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 needs, it needs them. Uh, it needs it does, them because it, it uh, I mean, mo- mo- most, and that was all of some challenge with that movie because most of it takes place in the, the, the radio booth. So, yes. uh, you know, uh, Oliver Stone was one of our most interesting visual filmmakers at that yes. around that time. So, how do you make that interesting? Uh, mm-hmm. and tonally, tonally, you can definitely view it as an Oliver Stone movie. And oh yeah. That it that it fits in his canon, but I you know I've read a review uh, interview with him recently where he talked about talk radio, and he said you know it was one of the more difficult movies, um, just in terms of capturing it correctly, mm-hmm. uh, and in in a way that felt cinematic. Yeah, that's true, and I think he was originally slated to jump into Born on the Fourth of July after Wall Street, and this came up. And I think he was going to produce it, I believe. I don't think he was originally going to direct it. And then somehow or another, they had no director. It fell through or something, and he just decided it's a, at the last yeah. minute to take it on as a it challenge was a quickie to move. It was a quickie movie. Yeah. yeah. And, and a very uh, good of him to uh, to keep uh, Bogosian, I mean, yes. the person that wrote it and performed it and knew it the best. Oh yeah, uh, I was. Uh, I'm sure for Bogosian, maybe it, uh, a challenge in itself to 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 reinterpret to to fit an Oliver Stone vision, something yeah. that he knew so intimately. Totally agree. Yeah, it's uh There's actually a documentary on here about the making of it. That's what I was going to mention on this Twilight Time release. There's a documentary called "Filming Rage: Oliver Stone on Talk Radio." It's 30 minutes, by the way. So. Anybody who wants to get into the nuts and bolts of the production of the movie, this, it uh, pretty much tells you what you need to know. And the trailer is here as well. And uh, it's a great transfer. It looks great. Uh, there's isolated music track as well. So um, I'm so glad they put that out. I'm just going to say it right here and now. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not and as a, as a stage play, it's not one that's uh... – uh, mounted often enough. I know that a few years ago, uh, Leif Schreiber did it. Yeah. 
uh, on Broadway, and I'm sure that was great. But uh, it seems like you'd you'd see more revivals of it just uh, around mm-hmm. the country, really. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, it's very demanding. It's a one man, you know. Yeah, it's got to be a very demanding kind of thing to do mm-hmm. as a one man piece. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it would have to be challenging. But um, yeah. But moving along to another of the Twilight Time releases, you have Will, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, which is credited as one of the films that made Jane Mansfield put her on the map. And Tony Randall is in this, and Joan Blondell, and the great character actors John Williams and Henry Two things Jones. that put Jane Mansfield on the map, and they're not movies. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know that, those of which you speak. <laughs> <laughs> This this is a very good movie. I want to say that for people who uh, right from the opening of it, it's it's written and directed by um, uh, Frank Tashlin, adapted from the George Axelrod play. When Axelrod's plays were being you know adapted in the fifties a lot, the Seven Year Itch is another one. But this one is very, you know Tashlin, if you remember, is that uh, you know he started out doing Porky Pig cartoons and he eventually moved into making feature films. And his background in those Porky Pig cartoons is very evident in this movie. I mean, this it, there's a it's hard to articulate exactly what it is, but when you see it, you you can there's there's a same certain sensibility that that those animators had that that comes through in this movie, and it, there's parts of it that remind you of a live action cartoon, and it's uh, even the opening shot of the movie when they do the 20th Century Fox logo, they have Tony Randall, it's a Cinemascope movie, and he's in the lower left-hand side of the frame, and he's doing all, playing all the instruments to the 20th Century Fox fanfare. Like he's blowing the trumpet, and then he plays the drums, and then he, he does the. Uh-huh. It's it's really cleverly done, and uh, anyway, just a lot of fun, and and another great release from Twilight Time. I wanted to tell people if you haven't seen Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, it's out there. The admirable. Uh, Crichton is another of their films based on the uh, play by J.M. Barry. And this is another James Bond director, Lewis Gilbert, who made this. And it's uh, it's about a, a English butler, played by Kenneth Moore, who's forced to take charge when he and his helpless employers are stranded on a, de- on a desert island. That's a plot that was later on used for... Um, uh, oh, what's the Madonna movie? And then it was it was originally a French movie, and then the, they remade it as Swept Away. Swept That's Away? It. Yeah, yeah, it's the same plot basically, or a similar plot. But um, anyway, Admirable oh, Crichton. Promising. Yeah, and, <laughs> except this one was made in the fifties. Uh, the original Swept Away is actually very good, but the one that was made in seventy four is that German or French? I can't remember. But anyway, it's Lena Wertmuller. I think that's German. But anyway, uh, is, is, there a, is there a is there a is there a superior previous version of uh, Shanghai Surprise? I don't know about that if there is. Uh, I'm all ears if anybody knows. But, um, yeah, well, we lost Stanley Doan, and you and I mentioned that on um, the last episode. And ironically, the day that he his passing was announced, uh, I received the Twilight Time, their fourth title of the month, was Bedazzled, which was remade by Harold mm. Ramis in 2000. And this is the original one from 1967, uh, Donan also made Two for the Road that same year. It was one of my favorite movies of all of the ones he directed. But this is, uh, you know, about the wimpy bar burger flipper played by 
Dudley Moore, who's in love with a waitress, and he sells his soul to the devil, played by Peter Cook, in exchange for seven wishes. And there, uh, you know, you even get Raquel Welch in a cameo as uh, the incarnation of lust. But uh, anyway, this is uh, the script is by Peter Cook, and it's based on a story by Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, so their hands are all over it. But it's a lot of fun, another fun movie, and uh, just shows you how yeah. versatile Stanley Donan was. So um, nice batch of titles from Twilight Time, and, uh, yeah. and then we'll get into a couple couple more Criterions real fast. Uh, All That Heaven Allows, the uh, Douglas Sirk film from 1955, has been issued on Blue, starring James Lyman, Rock Hudson, Agnes Moorhead, and Gloria Talbot. Have you watched it? The uh, transfer? I didn't get a review copy of this one. I've seen it several times. I love it actually. It's glossy, yeah. technicolor, melodrama. I mean, what more do you need? And Douglas Sirk did those. Oh, yeah, it's better be- it's than- beautiful, beautiful, yeah. beautiful look at. I'm just. Uh, yeah. I'm sure their transfer is great. I don't know if it's oh, a I new know. transfer, but. Yeah, I'm probably gonna have to pick it up myself. Yeah, I didn't get a review copy of that one. I guess they ran out, but. Um, Anyway, for people who are fans of All That Heaven Allows, I wanted to, to make sure people knew about that one. Uh, another one of their releases is Le Verite from 1960, directed by Henri Georges Clouseau. And um, that's uh, that's one I've, I've seen. A, I think the only Clouseau film I've seen was The, uh, the Wages, of, um, Wages of Fear that was later made into Sorcerer, of course, the yeah. uh, Friedkin film. But uh, I've not seen this one, La Verite, but um, it's one of one of his. And uh, Death in Venice, the Lucchino Visconti film with Dick Bogard, and yeah. uh, 1971. Not sure how that would play in well, today's. You know, uh, you know the story about Wages of Fear and Freakin. That Freakin was, I think he was at Cannes or something with, with uh-huh. Clouseau, and. Uh, he said, I'd like to remake Wages of Fear. And Clouseau was like, well, you'll never make it as good as I did. And Freakin' Zigo uh, kind of took over from that point. And so he mm-hmm. made Sorcerer, and it tanked. And I guess he saw Clouseau after that. And he just looked at Clouseau and said, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Well, at least he was able to. Uh, he was man enough to admit it. But I still think uh, Sorcerer is better. I mean, I, I like the Wages of Fear. Yeah. Don't get me wrong; it is a very good movie. But I still think Sorcerer, one of the rare instances where a remake actually uh, bests the original. But, um, mm-hmm. So uh, maybe here's a movie that's crying out for a remake: Young Blood from 1986, starring what? Rob Lowe, Cynthia Gibb, and Patrick Swayze. <laughs> I'm jesting, of course. <laughs> what a, that was a great that was a great segue. I actually thought you were sincere. <laughs> that was just me and my bizarre sense of humor. You know, uh Peter Markle directed, uh you know, you got Rob Lowe as the sensitive young farm boy fighting against the odds as he struggles to succeed in the brutal sport of ice hockey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Good and, stuff, uh, a good eighties relic. Yeah. Ed Lauder, we talked about him in the Midnight Man. Well, he turns up in this one too. And we're always talking about Cynthia Gibb. You know, we keep talking we mm. talk about her turning up and stuff in the eighties and so she's in this one too. 
But uh, that's a keynote. Yeah, release. I, uh, I remember her in that. I remember her in Youngblood. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I won't say I won't say why I remember her in Youngblood. <laughs> but uh, but you do remember. Yeah. She was a she was a popular uh, go-to actress at that time. What what happened to her? I don't know. She just kind of I don't know if she got out of the business or just the dry the role stopped coming in. I don't know. I'm not sure. She stopped making movies, and if you remember, um, she uh, she was the one to play Karen Carpenter in that TV movie. That's correct. Yes, uh, she did. It was one of her yeah, earliest uh, early, earliest movies. Yeah, she did a good job. That's I thought interesting. It's an interesting movie that. Uh, okay, Cynthia Gibb has an official website. It was last updated on uh, in 2013 when she did a Lifetime movie. Hmm. That's a while back. We need to get her on the show. I'd love to have her on. That would be great. Uh, she's she was in a lot of stuff. She, she's got good stories. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, you got a Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds. Let's see. She has a place on our website where she shares anecdotes about uh, the people that she's worked with. She says about Burt Reynolds because they did Malone together. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I forgot about that. <laughs> he made me feel like an equal on the set when I was still such a novice. Hmm. Oliver Stone, I became politically active and aware because of him. Changed my life. Uh, Sean Penn, he paid me a compliment once, and I'll never forget the honor. I think that he's one of the most talented people in my generation. I'll, I'll watch anything he makes. Hmm. Richard Carpenter, I never would have known how to hold that mic correctly if it weren't for him. Wow. <laughs> yeah, okay. That, that's like, she's saying all these great things. Oh, he was amazing. He changed my life. Uh, Richard Carpenter taught me how to hold the mic correctly. That's kind of like, <laughs> maybe she didn't quite well, like Richard Carpenter. Well, uh, everybody brings their own thing to the table, I guess. And that was Richard Carpenter's contribution, I guess. <laughs> That Carpenter's yeah. movie was weird, though. I, I, re- I rewatched that a couple of weeks ago. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's strange. They, they shot it in the actual house, and they shot it with the actual paramedics that took her body out of the house. I know. That, that was weird, yes. But that opening scene, which is like the young Karen Carpenter watching the old, older Karen Carpenter die. Yeah. Such a way to open a TV movie of all things. It was I know, kind and it has weird, and it's done to the strains, if I remember correctly, of uh, Rainy Days and Mondays. Yeah, so I think they're playing that. You know, they're they're putting like the 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 the, the oxygen mask on her face, and they're playing uh, you know the opening bars from Rainy Days and Mondays. It's it's it is yeah. kind of bizarre. And the the yeah. movie I, I believe was family sanctioned. I mean, Richard was. Richard's yeah, he was involved. Blessing. Yeah, he was involved yeah. because uh, I remember him doing press at the time of it because he was um he he I don't think anybody realized that he had an addiction to uh to prescription. Yeah. He had a pres- you know a, a, a drug problem basically. And uh I think it was painkillers I believe because he hurt his back or something and I think that's that's what it was. So he he was battling his own demons and people didn't even realize it. And so that was kind of a revelation I remember at the time. I mean, you know, obviously it wasn't as life-threatening as what she uh as Karen was dealing with, but still 
pretty pretty serious nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. They, I'm yeah. sure Carpenter aficionados and I love the Carpenters. I knew their music, but Me I, too. To, um, you think about artists who express their lives and downfalls and pitfalls through their music, like it's a extension of who they are. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if the Carpenters' music was a masking of all of that uh, instead of a reveal of it, like a lot of artists do. Yeah, um, true. And yet, in the after knowing how she died, I wonder how much of their music takes on like an extra kind of melancholy feel because of that. I mean, there's, yeah, cause there's I an element of there's an element of superstar that feels kind of haunting. Yes, in a way. That's a good point. And I don't and I don't know yeah. if that's only because of our knowledge of. What came of her? I think the one that sticks in my mind is Goodbye to Love because, you know, it's pretty mm-hmm. well known that she never found love. You know, she she married and the family was warning her not to marry this guy and she married him and it turned out disastrously and and she just won't, always wanted to uh to you know, to to love and and be in love and it just never uh you know, it never happened and so that song took on a, a whole other Knowing that later, you know, that song took on a whole new meaning as well, like you're talking about with Superstar. So, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, hmm. they, you ever they heard her good. solo album? I did, yeah. Yeah, it was... Um, was interesting failure. It was. <laughs> yeah, there's some, there's, some good, there's some good stuff on there, but there's a lot of stuff that uh, I, I can kind of see why it was shelved ultimately. Disco but, Carpenter. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. But they, uh, you know, recently he just went into the studio and um, redid all of, uh, mm. uh, well, not all of them, but a big a portion of their songs for with the Royal Philharmonic. And yeah. He said yeah. he said that he was really, I was reading an interview with him, and he said it was just a great opportunity to come in and, you know, uh, correct some of the mistakes that he had bothered him over the years. He said because when he can, when he would listen to the original recordings, he could hear things like the humming of a of an air conditioner in the background that he right. knew was going on at the time, <laughs> and so he could like uh, digitally erase that stuff now. And uh, uh, you know, it's, yeah, he's so, uh, and I I listened to some of that, some of those new recordings, and uh, mm-hmm. some of them are barely perceptible the changes that he makes he's a fierce hmm. defender of his his arrangements and he he was a you know he was a very talented arranger yeah uh, he heard he heard uh he heard schmaltz uh but he was sincere i think yeah uh he was yeah um but it is interesting there's a great terry gross interview with him from years ago where he, where he fiercely defends his, his arrangements um, because they're easy. They're, sometimes they're easy to for people cynics to make fun of because it's so kind of soft and lush yeah. and uh, yeah. shameless. <laughs> That's true. It's uh, well, it's funny we're talking about this because the next title is one that uh, is uh, a musical biopic as well, and that would be Backbeat, starring Stephen Dorff and Cheryl Lee. Uh-huh. 
story of the early days of the Beatles. Right. And, um, you know, it's a little uh, backstory on the fifth Beatle, Stuart Sutcliffe, the bass guitarist. Right. Who died young, you know, as a, as a result of a fight. He had this brain contusion or whatever, and uh, cerebral hemorrhage. And is, that like, so. is that like 89, or what year was that? 93, actually. Okay. And it's, uh, it has a soundtrack with music from Dave Grohl, Dave Perner, and Mike Mills of R.E.M. So, mm. it, you know, and it has, uh, the music is uh, composed in produced by Don Waz, the the famous music producer. But yeah, yeah. I think it's a a pretty good uh a, a fair a fair um look at the early days of the Beatles. It has uh this this is a Shout Select, one of the Shout Factory special editions. They're kind of their their equal uh their version of the Criterion line, I guess you'd call. It has a Deleted scenes and interview with the director and one of the lead actors, Ian Hart, and featurette, casting session, that kind of stuff. So uh, backbeat for anybody who uh, is interested in the early days of the Beatles and has not seen that. It's I would say it's worth your time. Uh, another Screen Factory is The Vengeance of She, which was kind of a – this is Ursula Andress um, – it was in the original. I'm sorry, Ursula Andress was in the original. She, this is kind of a quasi-sequel, which Alinka Barova uh, takes the Ursula Andress role in this one. And um, it's a Hammer production. It's one that's been, uh, again, a lot of people wanted to see it released. And there's a new two-scan of the original film elements, um, new interviews with the assistant director, visual effects artist, uh, new audio commentary, theatrical trailer, couple documentaries or featurettes, uh, you know, so if you're a hammer completist, there's The Vengeance of She, and uh, one of the Bela Lugosi vampire films where he plays a vampire not named Dracula, The Return of the Vampire. The reason he's not named Dracula in this film is because it was made by Columbia Pictures and they couldn't get the rights to use the name Dracula, which was owned by Universal. (laughs) But, um... He's playing a 200-year-old Hungarian vampire, and I think this was the last time he played a vampire, uh, I believe, of that of that type. But this was 1943. It's a Screen Factory release, as I said. Uh, new audio commentary by our buddy Lee Gambin, and uh, oh, also a commentary with uh, film historian Gary Don Rhodes and um, the trailer and still gallery. So there you go. And then we have The Mole People from 1940. 56, and this one stars John Agar and Hugh Beaumont of Leave It to Beaver fame. And uh, there are three. It's uh, there are a couple of archaeologists who come upon an unusual race of albino beings who shun all forms of life and have mutant mole men as their slaves. Uh, this contains the uh, a new audio commentary, and it also has the Mystery Science Theater episode of the Mole People for anybody who wants to laugh at it as opposed to watch it with a straight face. So, <laughs> Scream Factory, again, and this is one of those classic universal horror films from that time period. And um, we're getting to the tail end here. There's a couple of DVD collections I wanted to mention. Um, Paramount has issued a Mark Wahlberg collection, which has uh, five of his films paired together, Pain and Gain, The Gambler, Shooter, The Fighter, and The Italian Job. 
They have a Audrey Hepburn 7 movie collection, which has Breakfast at Tiffany's, Funny Face, My Fair Lady, Paris When It Sizzles, Roman Holiday, Sabrina, and War and Peace, all three hours and eight minutes of War and Peace. And uh, Paul Newman, a six-movie collection, which has A New Kind of Love, Fat Man and Little Boy, HUD, Nobody's Fool, Road to Perdition, and Twilight. So these are... uh... (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. It's like sometimes when I'm when I'm selling my records on eBay, I bundle them in, in a bundle of four, and I throw in one that I know nobody wants, like pay anything for. But the other three <laughs> titles are too irresistible, <laughs> not to bid on it. Uh, yeah, that's similar to what they're doing there with those packages. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's like uh, B B Paul Boop. Newman movies, and then you put in HUD, and you're like, well, <laughs> that kind of gives it some kind of credence, you know? <laughs> this is true. Well, a couple more titles I will mention. Uh, these are both Shout Factory releases. Well, one's a Scream Factory and the other Shout Factory. Uh, Scream Factory has issued the 2003 remake of Willard with Crispin Glover. Uh, and Crispin Glover, yeah. Yeah. Arlie Ermey, which I think this is one of those rare remakes. We were talking about it earlier uh, with Sorcerer. This is another one of those remakes that I think best the original because they, they kind of yeah. up the camp value, and I, I think it's a lot of fun. I really do. And Arlie Ermey plays a great um, evil boss, um, you know, doing what he normally does. And I don't know. It's It's really well done, I think. And uh, they even managed to work in the Michael Jackson song "Ben" into the movie, which was a yeah, uh, yeah. the title theme from the original, from the sequel to the original Willard. And they managed to work it in so odd. <laughs> yeah, it is. So so weird that that uh, a legitimate sweet song from Michael Jackson that nobody equated with a uh, about a with a movie about rats, killer rats. Um, I know. Have you ever seen that house? That's that's actually I put that as a stop in our oh, LA the Willard trip. House. Uh, yes. No, I haven't. The original Willard House. Yep. Oh, oh yeah. I would love that's right up my alley. I've seen the movie many times. I would love that. That's great. Keep it on there. <laughs> Let's do it if we can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, one other uh, Shout Factory release that is worth mentioning is. Um, Used Cars from 1980, and this has been issued. This is another mm. Twilight Time release that went out of print really quickly because there's a huge demand for this movie. I mean, it's a cult favorite, and thankfully they've put this back out. It has a new interview with Bob Gale, the co-writer and producer. It has a commentary by Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, and Kurt Russell. It has outtakes, wow. radio interviews, theatrical trailer, photo galleries, and more. So um, if you're a fan of used cars, which I am, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's um, the retail price is 19.95 on this. I'm saying 19.95 never killed anybody. Um, of course, that's a joke in the movie, $50 never killed anybody. But <laughs> that's my uh, reference to the movie there. So anyway... Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a great movie, and I really find it hard to trust anybody who doesn't think it's funny. If they tell me they don't think used cars is funny, I just my opinion of them instantly is downgraded. So I <laughs> I have to say that's one of the yardsticks by which I measure people. 
that. But anyway, um, so um, I think that's about everything, actually. Uh, there's one more title here. We have uh, Invasion of the Blood Farmers from 1972, another one of those horror films. This is a Severin release, but uh, it's one I've heard referenced, but I've not seen it, but... I wanted to uh, throw it out there for any horror fans, and um, I think that might be just about everything for the month of February. springtime 